0: mm mm-hmm. the Cup, where we will be spilling all sorts of tea about what's going on inside Washington, D.C., what regulators and lawmakers are thinking about and working on, and what you and your credit union should be evaluating in terms of risk areas and areas of opportunity. I'm your host, Ann Petros, Vice President of Regulatory Affairs at NAFCU, and today I am joined by Victor Cardwell. He is Principal and Chairman at the Law Firm of Woods Rogers Vandaveter Black, and he co-chairs the firm's labor and employment practice group. Victor counsels clients on a wide range of employer concerns, and he is also the immediate past president of the Virginia Bar Association, where he and I met. Thank you, Victor, for joining me today.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure, and Thank you for having me.
0: I'm really excited to dive into some labor and employment law issues, and so for all of you legal eagles out there, this episode might be of particular interest to you. So, Victor, I've been reading a lot about unionization efforts, um, and both, you know, large and small credit unions have recently experienced firsthand employee unionization. Um, So just working at a bank or credit union doesn't prevent employees from forming or joining a union under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so this topic can definitely get a little political, uh, but yes. as an expert in this field, you know what's behind the impetus to organize um, in what some may call you know non-traditional labor sectors like financial services.
1: Yeah, and listen again, thank you for having me, and thank you for the question. What I will tell all of your listeners is this is the best type of law to ever practice. If you're labor and employment, you're dealing with your employees, and you're dealing with things that, if it happens in life, it happens at work. And one of the fundamental things to keep in mind about unions, and that's the labor part of my um, title when I say labor and employment lawyer, um, the labor part is unions. That These unions have been part of an American culture since, oh, 1937 or so. Uh, maybe a little bit before. And and while they have had traditional blue-collar workforces they've been involved in, think about the railroad, think about automotive manufacturing and the like, um, what we've seen now, particularly in 2023 and going forward, is how unions are frankly looking at those non-traditional services. And before we even get to you know financial institutions like the credit unions, think about Starbucks. Um, you know, those folks were never thinking when they went in to buy that caramel macchiato, whatever the heck it is that, that people buy from there, I drink water, not coffee, that um, they'd be talking to unionized employees. Um, but they are. And you take it another step further, depending on where you live and what grocery stores you shop in, you're probably dealing with unionized employers, employees right there as well. Mm-hmm. So if you think about unions as And again, I'm a management side attorney, so I don't intend to um, cause stress or or anything else for some of your listeners who who may be on the other side of the ledger. Uh, But the fact of the matter is unions are a business. That's what they are. They are a business. And their business, um, unlike the credit union to provide financial services to to its members, is to organize employees. And as part of organizing employees, they receive union dues. So... They have organized a host of different places or in institutions or industries all across the country historically, and now they're looking for new territories. Mm-hmm. And this is where your credit unions and your financial services groups need to be very careful because just because it's the United Mine Workers or the Steel Workers, or and I can go on, um, CWA communications workers, they absolutely can and will organize your employees. Um, We've seen a a large uptick, and it is. You mentioned the politics associated with it. The National Labor Relations Board um, is a political entity. It is. And the way it's staffed basically is the majority of board members will come from the reigning party in the White House. So right now when President Biden in the White House, he has more, he, he will have more labor-friendly or employee-friendly, union-friendly appointees on the National Labor Relations Board. So that means that every, every four years or so, employees should be very mindful of what the landscape is like. And right now in, in credit union and financial services, you need to be on your best Ps and Q's to ensure that you control your future for as much as you can. There are ways to do that.
0: Well, we are very familiar here at NAFQ with the politics of you know, agency uh, board configurations, <laughs> and um, sometimes that can play into your favor, other times not so much.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: yeah, so we certainly understand how that ebbs and flows uh, with, with changes in the administration. Definitely yeah. a consideration. Mm-hmm.
1: No, it you is. Know. And and what you, oh, oh, and I didn't want to cut you off, but I was simply going to say what people need to be mindful of is that With that ebb and flow, with unions as much as anything else, I mean, again, financial institutions and the rules and regulations that are in play are allowed to lapse. Um, Unions gain significant strength during a democratic term. They really Mm. do.
0: Right. That makes sense. How has COVID impacted all of this?
1: It's a fascinating question that you ask, right? Because- COVID has so many bad things associated with, and for all of your listeners, any of them who were affected by or impacted by COVID, you have our condolences and prayers. But the fact of the matter is COVID did a couple of things that some people deemed to be good. It sort of changed the workplace. It changed the work environment. So many people can now or want to always work from home. Um, many employers are, are being forced to talk about how flexible they can be with regard to their work policies and workplaces. And it's just made the desire or need to get good employees even that much more difficult. Um, you know, the idea that, frankly, people should be lucky to have a job and and, and come to a place that helps them pay their bills. Well, that's, that's that was changed a lot during COVID because a number of people, some who probably could work a lot, who certainly could not. Um, You know, they got used to being at home. They got used to perhaps um, having things a little bit more their way than than they have had in the past. So COVID has absolutely changed that. And what does that do for unions? Well, as an employer, you've got to figure out how to have a work environment that works for you. In a credit union, it's really difficult to imagine all your employees working from home because customers need to come in. They need to make deposits. They need to see everybody. Not everybody's electronic. And if you have a workforce that wants to have this immense flexibility, well, an employer has to sometimes be maybe not the nice guy and has to say, no, I actually need you here. Mm -hmm. Unions, on the other hand, they can promise you anything they want. And that's the real important thing to keep in mind um, for your listeners and for people who are running these organizations is that you're not fighting a fair game and you need to recognize that. As an employer or credit union, you have to tell employees, listen, our hours are 9 to 5. We have customers coming from this time to this time. I need you here. Well, you doesn't necessarily have to care about that in organizing your employees. They can simply tell them, oh no, if you need more flexibility, we'll get it for you. Or they could say the other thing. If you want to go in because you don't want to be home we'll make sure they have the office open for you um they make these promises and, and for your members if you can see me or attendees those are mere political promises according to the law um, they can promise anything they want to to get people interested in and to sign up for the union they can make those types of promises because ultimately they don't have the power to do it until they negotiate with the employer. So COVID and and this idea of more flexible workplaces has really changed how we have to interact with our employees and how we have to be sure that while we're giving them everything they need to keep and retain good employees, we're also mindful of the business aspect and the fact there's a third party out there who might be trying to uh, entice them to to do something different.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, now we're, you know, at a place, you know, in in the progress we've made since covid where we see, you know, the likes of Wall Street investment banks like Goldman Sachs requiring everyone to be back in the office 5 days a week no exceptions, but I think the majority of the financial services industry is still somewhere in between kind of a hybrid yep. approach, but as you mentioned right, like certain roles tellers, for example, need to be there physically in branches to accept deposits and help consumers with transactions. So um, it's just very interesting to think about how unions play a part in that bargaining process and, and maybe have well, a they bit do. of a and, creative marketing tactic. to. <laughs> oh, well, that's
1: exactly right. And keep in mind, those very tellers and those frontline customer service type people, those are the people they want to attract. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the people they want to get interested in this idea, because, you know, let me face it, when you're, when you're working in a frontline position, you feel like you don't have a lot of control, or a lot of power, a lot of influence. Now, as a good employer, we know that we listen to our employees, but those employees may not think that my word matters that much. Um, and so the union can make them feel like they have a power. So if there's a message to give to your listeners is pay attention early. Please use your human resource just as that, a resource. Make sure you're paying attention to some of the small things in your in your work environment that may be good bad or indifferent and see if you can improve them. Um, The more we're in front of these issues, the better off we'll be.
0: Mm -hmm. So as a result of COVID, there's also been a lot more focus on flexible leave policies. And so how have unions been working to negotiate greater flexibility for, for their workers?
1: Yeah, see, keep in mind unions are, I mean, they're smart. They've been around for a long time for a reason. And this idea of flexibility, and you hit on it just a moment ago when you talked about, you know, some of the employers. I mean, even the entity, the company that was Zoom, I know we're in a different format here, but they've made headlines recently saying we need our employees to come back into work. I mean, and but unions are, are, are smart. They're able to say, look, if you need flexibility, we will help you get it. We will, we will ensure when we negotiate with your employer that you're able to work two days a week or three days a week from home or whatever it is. And again, they don't have to worry about how the business is done or operated. And that's where we as 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 employers and we as people who operate union free, um, need to be very clear about that. And, and I guess I should stop right there and just uh, and just address this. For any of your employees uh, or listeners or, or people who are paying attention, if you have not worked in a unionized environment or had a unionized environment, the problem is the restrictions. You aren't able to reallocate resources or make changes in your operations in a lot of settings without negotiating with the union. Today, you have the flexibility to make decisions, to restaff or, or move down different product lines, and move others up, which might affect personnel, that's a big deal. And, it's, and, you know, that lack of flexibility is why, when I talk about it from a management standpoint, you want to try to avoid having a union come in. And in the financial services institutions, you are not going to be as aware or attuned to these issues necessarily as some of my manufacturing clients or other clients mm-hmm. who've had to worry about this for decades.
0: Right, right. Different, different yeah. sectors. <laughs> um, different you know, sectors, know. absolutely. This this sector of the economy is uh, kind of new to this space. So I'm um, very excited to be having this conversation because I think it'll be useful to a lot of credit unions that are maybe finding themselves in a, in a position where you know unions are a topic of discussion right now.
1: And, you know, the comment I'll make to you is, you know, again, I know there are a couple of in New York and a couple of other environments where the unions actually got into co-ops and credit unions. And we know that California and we know that the banking industry, not the credit union industry, but there have been some hits to the reputation with some banks falling. And so people are looking for stability They're looking right. for something else. And unions can promise all sorts of things and they can promise that without having to d- deliver it. They can make the promise. So it's important that we're aware of how the general public views us, how our employees view us, and what we can do to stay in front of some of the negative press that comes along.
0: That's a really good. In no point, of our own. Yeah, public perception is is important. So you know, related to the the topic of hybrid and flexible work policies, um, how has the adoption of those policies impacted employers' ability to attract and retain talent? I mean, obviously, this is you know topic of discussion with unions, but in terms of you know getting new employees in the door, what does that look like nowadays?
1: it has it has literally turned turned the ability to recruit and retain people on its head. It has in in every sector. I, I I help manage a law firm, and i and fortunately, I work with a lot of clients in in industries all across the the country and in some places around the world. it's it's fascinating how people make the mistake of thinking it's all about money. How much can you pay me? What's the living wage now? Um, and to a large degree, what you're hearing is people asking more about what's my quality of life? how How is work happening? And how is it happening in a way that I still get to spend time with my loved ones? And we should all be sensitive to that. We should all pay attention to that. But with regard to how you attract and retain talent, it probably should be one of the first things in your in your in your advertisements, in your job postings, your job descriptions, but again, set a reasonable expectation um, because nothing is worse than saying, yes, we're completely flexible. You can work from home all the time. And then operationally, we know you can't, Um, you know, so you got to be careful there. But I would say to you that this idea of flexible work policies and how to attract talent, they go hand in hand. Um, Again, just from a personal standpoint, I can tell you that when we look at bringing in lawyers and whether they're new lawyers on law school or ones who've been working for a long time. Some of the very first questions we hear now are, well, how's the work schedule? And when can I work from home? And when can I not? That's that's like the, one of the first topics that comes up. And if you go pre-COVID, that was never a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. So, I would say to you, anybody who is not at least aware of this issue, this issue of flexibility and how it's going to affect how you attract talent, I will also tell you that without a doubt, you'll be poached and you will not retain it because other similar entities are looking at how they can do it one step better. Um, So, it has become... just. Probably one of the most critically important topics that managers and HR professionals need to come together about um, and develop a game plan, a coaching game plan before they get swept up by other people.
0: Right, right. So I mean, you know, everyone has different needs um and and wants their employer to to meet them where where they are and and provide the flexibilities that that meet their lifestyle and the needs of their families. Um and you know, that kind of ties into the topic of diversity, equity and inclusion which is very uh, prominent in in the business worlds mm-hmm. these days, you know it's rare to find an institution that doesn't talk about DEI and in, in some form or fashion. Uh, you know, while some organizations may have explicit DEI policies, others just sort of embody that, but maybe don't have an explicit policy, but. Why is DEI important in terms of, for example, vendor selection and employee recruitment and retention?
1: It's a great question, and it does it dovetails very nicely to the flexibility issue. Um, you, you made a statement just now, or you used a phrase, meet me where I am. Um, in 2023, it makes perfect sense, and it makes perfect sense from an employer standpoint, from a manager standpoint, from any boss's standpoint. He's got to look at his employees, or uh, she's got to look at her employees and say, where are they? You go pre-COVID, that was not the conversation. The conversation was: This is what time we start. This is what time we finish. This is how much you'll make, and these are your benefits. Have a good day. We'll see you. Right? And 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 that that has changed. And then when you lay on top of that the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and when we talk about that in, from a management perspective, it's a very important topic, and it's one that people should be careful not to get swept up in whatever the. I'm going to use the phrase politically incorrect or, or whatever it is. This isn't about politics. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is about doing the right thing and keeping a good work um, employee um, base. Because those people who work for you, if they reflect your community, you're going to be more likely to have people come in and want to want to participate in your services, want to make deposits and or you know work out loans or withdrawals. If they feel like you don't look like us, they won't be there. So this issue of DEI, regardless of what else you might be reading about in the press and and how it's been co-opted to mean something bad, it's critically important. And for any employee who's not giving thought to it right now, they too will find themselves behind the curve. Because, again, if you think about it for a second. Diversity, equity, and inclusion deals with the people who were not in the room, had not been part of the selection process, had not been selected, and certainly not the decision-making process to part of your question. So if I am a person who's like, I'm on the outs and I don't see an avenue, or I don't see an employer who's being sensitive to who I am um, in that regard, I'm going to look for third party. So, again, whether it's an enforcement agency, um, you know, to file a claim against you or a union or something else, these issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion go much deeper than just your bottom line, but they enhance your bottom line. Because if you are looking at vendors, if you're looking at um, people to serve you, if you have this as a thought, again, let's be clear, this doesn't mean that you're out there saying, oh, I only want women, I only want people of color, I only want people with disabilities. No, it's not saying it at all. It's just saying I recognize the importance of what different people can bring to the table and every good employer is, is is looking at that as an issue, and every person who's looking to hire or participate in your services is looking at how you're doing it. And similarly, we should be looking at our vendors and asking them the same questions that we're asked. You know, what are you doing in this regard? And it doesn't mean that you have to be out there, you know, uh, leading a charge that everybody should be Different and nobody can be the same, just the opposite. You just need to find the best people and make sure you don't have in place either written policies or, or ones that are just sort of by, by force of how you attract people are not recognizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you'll bear with me for one second, I'll give you a good example. It yes, was please. an employer that I dealt with. It was an employer and they had a, they grew from a real small, high-tech organization very high-tech, very um, advanced. But their hiring practices from the very beginning, they were some friends and the rest of the people they hired, sort of about word of mouth. And in particular, they hired from their church they attended on Sunday. Okay. okay. Sounds like a perfectly great place to find good people. The problem with that process, and the reason it really smacks in the face of DEI is, in spite of how great our melting pot has worked, I mean, it is the best country in the world, and we all come together in different ways. The one thing that we recognize about America right now is we still pray separately. So 11 o'clock on Sunday, the traditional time for church, is sort of viewed as the most segregated time in America. Thus, if you only recruit from a church, your church, you may not be recognizing the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, even though you didn't intend to. So it's real important. When you think about DEI and you think about your operations that you don't just think, huh, oh, this makes sense to me." Think about what the impact might be globally, and that's where great HR experience, human resource experience, and sometimes counsel can help.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what about it's, with it's respect, a big topic. What about with, with respect to succession planning? You know, especially when you think about credit union boards of directors and you know executive or senior leadership, including in the C-suite.
1: And you you hit the nail on the head. The bottom line is, if you're not aware of paying attention to, to DEI issues, your leadership will not change. It will not. And 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 again, nobody is saying that you have to go in and clean out the C-suite or over overtake your entire board of directors. But there are so many statistics out here that demonstrate. You know the, the the disparity in income and the disparity in leadership. I mean, you know, if you look at the Fortune 500, how many are being led by women? Probably two or three, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. And so, when you're talking about leadership, it's critically important you have people in the room who look different, so they can see things differently. I mean, frankly, if you want a board, a, a board to provide some type of guidance for the organization as a whole, you don't want anybody to look the same. But if we don't make a concerted effort to try to find people who are different, what qualified different but qualified then we'll keep we'll keep basically reprinting the same format over and over again so it's it is critically important and and, and it's the same thing with c-suite you know I'll sometimes see people get promoted from within but they reach certain mid-level managers mid levels they don't go up into the c-suite and that's when we have to make concerted effort to try to find more qualified people mm-hmm. a legitimate question some people could ask is well how do we find those people? you look. And I mean it quite sincerely. But you look in different ways, right? If I'm looking for some diverse new young talent, if I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, I may find myself going to American University, a great institution, Georgetown University, Howard University, and just letting people know we have openings. Or we're looking for high-level people. And so I may be talking to people who are in administration or who are faculty members or something else. You never know where you're going to find it, but the key is to make the concerted effort to try to look for it. That's all. You'll always find qualified people, but if you don't have those people, your board will look the same, and it will give you the same results. And we all have to improve, or simply we don't. Yeah, if we don't I improve, mean, we won't right. last.
0: If you don't improve, you you won't keep up. <laughs> uh, That's it. Yeah it it is it is very you know important, and that example that you brought up was I thought really telling of, you know, just how sometimes you may have kind of blinders on, especially in the hiring process. And I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of legal issues that can come up from from that Definitely, sort of it, it, limited or narrow scope in hiring. That's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. Point of fact, that scenario, it it while well, they had no intention to be discriminatory whatsoever, by doing so, the impact of that process did result in some charges of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we were able to win those charges, good lawyers and all. you know, but the fact of the matter is it was it was something that didn't need to happen if they didn't, you know, if they didn't need to address it. And and you know, we're fortunate. And I think i have mentioned this to you before. My firm, we have a long relationship with uh, Virginia Federal Credit Union League and 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 a host of credit unions all throughout the Southeast. So we sort of know the issues that credit unions are dealing with. And so we're sort of mindful of some of those kinds of policies that could come into play um that people might not otherwise think about.
0: Mm-hmm. So a sort of related topic, um, you know, NAFQ has heard a lot of questions recently um, over the past couple of years about, you know, some credit unions um, hearing from, you know, the Department of Labor that they have to have an affirmative action plan in place. So, you know, under the the regulations, the um, Department of Labor's guidance, credit unions and banks are federal contractors because they, you know, receive uh, share insurance or deposit insurance from the NCUA or FDIC. And you know, I know that you're familiar with this issue. Um, could you describe right. just, you know, high level what is an affirmative action plan uh, and why is it important?
1: Yeah, well, if you don't mind me taking a small step back, I will tell you that it's the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, OFCCP. Those are the watchdog for federal government dollars. And if you receive federal government dollars, I was actually able to attend and I go to a few of those um, seminars or or things they put on so I understand how the OFCCP um, looks at this particular issue and where they look at it. For all of your listeners, I would tell you, be afraid, be concerned. Um, because the OFCCP, their posture is we track federal government dollars, and the National Credit Union Association are those that deposit insurance is deemed federal dollars. You are an entity that's supposed to have an affirmative action plan or program. A broad view of that is simply this. That means you have to have a process in place and documentation in place that tracks your hiring efforts, your job opening efforts, and who comes in. Distinguish that completely from an affirmative action obligation. Mm-hmm. An affirmative action obligation is a need to bring in a certain number of minorities or women because you have a historical issue, and that'll be a court-mandated decision. So affirmative action obligation is different than an affirmative action plan. Affirmative action plan, though, it is detailed and it is nuanced. And it does require you to have, among other things, tracking processes where you can track not just openings, but applicants and not just successful applicants, but the ones that you rejected. People are asked to identify, um, you know, certain characteristics Um, and the Office of the Federal Contract Compliance Programs, they can come by and engage in the audit. And if they do engage in the audit, it's a white glove test right so i mean they literally can come in and look at your processes from top to bottom because we receive um, either federal government funds or we're part of NCUA. And so what I would tell your, your listeners is be mindful of it. Right now, the question was asked to OFCCP, very simply, is a financial institution covered covered by the National Credit Union Association with Department of Insurance required to comply with affirmative action plans under their name executive orders? I won't bore your listeners with that. And the answer very simply is yes, yes. Okay. When you share it and you have deposit insurance, then you have to have it. So now the next question is, what should we be doing? If there's bad news is that you're covered. The good news is I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm familiar with the OCCP coming in and doing audits on financial institutions on a haphazard or, or high number basis. But what I will tell you is if I'm running an organization, one of your credit unions, and I don't have a plan in place or a plan to create a plan, I'd be concerned. Mm-hmm. OK, I'd be concerned. You want to talk to somebody, um, talk to your counsel, talk to somebody about how you develop a plan. Again, it doesn't have to be completely onerous, but I can tell you the first steps of it will feel that way. It, it's it's a change, um, okay. but it's something you sh- we should at least have the conversation about. And if mm-hmm. we decide not to have a plan, at least we've made a knowing decision. Um, that's, that's you know, as lawyers, I, I don't tell people what they have to do. I just sort of try to tell them what kind of risks they might take and what kind of risks they might want to avoid. But these affirmative action plans are a big deal. And it, it dovetails very nicely back to our DEI conversation and even our workplace flexibility conversation, because the issue with an affirmative action program or plan is that we have to be sure that we're casting a broad net. Um, the plan asks us to prove that we're doing so. But if we're doing it and we're doing it naturally, organically, for lack of a better word, then we're going to be addressing flexibility issues. We're going to be addressing hiring and retaining talent issues. And we, and we can have ourselves in position when we put our plan in place that we can address what needs to happen there.
0: So you mentioned That's a long the...
1: answer. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no problem. Um, you mentioned the the audit process, though. What does that typically look like? And do you hear, you know, from banks and credit unions, I guess, frequently that that this affirmative action audit is taking place? That they're subject to you know, that.
1: Yeah. It uh, well, what it looks like again? It's a white glove test, and that means literally they have the ability to come in. They have the ability to ask you about. Things like your deposits and and your processes and your loan processes. I mean, they they are not limited. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. If you're subjected to a federal government audit from the OFCCP, consider them the highest level of authority coming in to talk to you about your organization. So it is an intimidating process, and it's one that you want to have counsel involved with immediately. Mm -hmm. The good news is right now, I can't say that there are a lot of credit unions and, 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 and financial institutions being audited. But what I can also tell you is the government communicates. So if there's an issue in one part of your world, for example, a basic EEOC charge, um, with the Employ- Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, if they sense that things don't feel right there, they may call their sister agency, OFCCP, for example, and say, perhaps you should talk to this organization and see exactly what they're doing. Ah, okay. So it is not that I see it rampant right now, but I would be very, very careful because one thing for sure that's happening, and it's not a bad thing. Um, you know, I've got a brother who works for the federal government, so I, I love our government, but we recognize that. If people say there's a problem, they will they can find time to come and address you, even though even though there are bigger and better things they should be doing, in my humble opinion.
0: Right. Um, and and so, how, yeah, how do it things is, it is how do things escalate, if that's the right term, uh, to you know, an affirmative action obligation.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, if they, if, if, for example, you have a charge or, 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 or an EEOC charge or, or, or you have a, a OFCCP audit and they look and see that your statistics, again, going back to my little scenario, um, that your statistics don't look like the, the, the prevailing work employment area. And again, for our friends in a DC metropolitan area, your applicant pool and your diversity of boards and, and leadership should look like that area. And, you know, D.C. is one of the great successes for what the melting pot is in America. And so if you have organizations that are based inside the District of Columbia, you should be very mindful of what it looks like. You move away from D.C. and you get to other parts of of the country that may not have the same levels of diversity. Your rooms may not look like you're trying, but your plan would certainly demonstrate the effort. The affirmative action obligations, and you know, um, for our listeners uh, who are here, you you hear of or saw most of them coming through the civil rights era, and in places where there was systemic and historical discrimination. But to you know, so you think about the southeast, and you think about the Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia type of. Environments, but again, in 2023, we, we we move away from that and we just look at how employers are doing. And the OFCCP looks at us all in a, in a single single shot lens, and they want to see how we're doing. And if they see that we have particular hiring problems. It could it could very quickly go from just internal investigation with federal government to litigation. And the conversation we can have on another day is how much I want all of your clients to avoid litigation, because right. frankly. While well, it makes a lot of money for lawyers like me, it's best system in the world, but not the best way to resolve your problems. Right. You right.
0: took the words out of my mouth. I was gonna say you want to avoid litigation in,
1: at all costs. Cost. <laughs> yes, it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and for any the any closing that's two lawyers saying that <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> any closing remarks for our viewers and listeners? What what are the key takeaways here?
1: Yeah, there are a couple takeaways. I, I think if there's, the first thing is you do value your employees. Make sure they know it. Make sure they know it. Whatever the small gestures are, and this doesn't mean you have to have cocktail receptions every Friday at, you know, five or whatever it is, or everybody gets a cupcake on Monday. It does mean, though, show your appreciation for your employees. If you don't have Think about what your human resource experience is and how it's playing out in your places of employment, right? Those things, because if you do those things, we go back to how we started the conversation. Unions will come in because they will tell them tell your employees how bad you're doing things. Unions will come in because even if it's a small slight or a small breach of law, if they find it, they get to say, look, your employee didn't care about the law. So, so if there's avoid? a takeaway... If you got it. So if there's a takeaway, the big takeaway is pay attention to your employees. And what I would say to you, you know, secondly, as we talk about flexible work policies, think about it, make sure people understand that you're flexible and you are listening, but they also need to understand. So it's a two way street that we have a business to run. Um, as we do those kind of things, our issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which can be an entirely different and a whole conversation, those things start to elevate. We start to get in people. You know, it's, it's great when you can look and say, yeah, I got an employee, never thought that, you know, a mother with three children could actually be the CFO of this organization, but she can be. She can be. And if it requires a little flexibility on our part, we got the best talent right there. Right. So pay attention to your employees. Pay attention not just to your deposits, but to the people who are getting them in the door. And that will minimize a lot of the things that I deal with as a labor and employment lawyer. But always be careful. And let me, this is a parting comment. What might seem like common sense with regard to what the law requires from an employment standpoint, even a labor standpoint, is not the answer right? There are technicalities here. And so you really have to make sure you have good resources available to you. And this organization with within, um, we can get you access to good organizations. That's my plug.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Victor. Uh, This has been a stellar conversation on some really important topics. Um, I hope all of our viewers and listeners found this informative. I certainly did. Um, Thank you again, Victor.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And thank you to our viewers and listeners for tuning in to this discussion on labor and employment law with the very knowledgeable Victor Cardwell. If you enjoy watching or listening to The Cup, please hit the subscribe button, the like button, turn on your post notifications, and let us know what you'd like to hear about on a future episode of The Cup. We always like hearing from you. Um, We are happy to, to meet you where you're at and talk about topics that are top of mind for you. So thanks again. and Until next time.